You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. I want to invite us to jump in. This series is called Be Happy, not because we're happy clappy around here so much as <laughs> some of you are like, oh, thank you, because we're not. I'm not happy clappy right? We're not. We, we are, however, people who believe that joy is possible. We are people who believe that the kind of happiness that funds our imagination and fuels us to be the kind of people that Jesus invites us to become, that that kind of happiness is truly possible. And so in this letter to Philippi, Paul over and over again is going to say things like, rejoice, be glad. By the way, this is hard. By the way, this is not the best ever. By the way, Jesus knows what it's like when things aren't hard and chose the hard thing anyway. Identified with suffering instead of power. And, and, and that's kind of one of the big themes that we see over and over throughout the letter. And we're going to see it this morning. And so what I was trying to get us to do as I asked all of us to sort of give voice to that peaceful place is to really tap into the theme of this morning's message, which is really just this idea of imagine a life of contentment. Imagining a life of contentment. Now, one of the things that can happen is when we talk about contentment, we can talk about really in the back of our minds complacency or or like I've got all, you know, it's this sort of like it's all good because I have all the stuff. If you're at our patriarchy debrief, you, you know that that's not true, right? Like, like having all the stuff can sometimes be the bondage that we need to be freed from, right? And so, so contentment isn't just, oh, I finally made it. I finally arrived. I've got the nice house, the nice cars, the nice spouse who thinks I'm great. Who has that? Come on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, how many of us have spouses that think we walk on water nonstop until we leave the water on too long or we forget to flush the toilet water? Like, come on, let's be real. But we can imagine with the imagination, and I'm not talking about the fake spaces of childhood, although Jesus did say something about being like a child that I think is worth thinking about talking about that space within us that actually sees the world through a different kind of lens and can imagine a better way forward in that world. That space, it sparks creativity, beauty, justice, love, generative qualities in general. Imagine a life of contentment. What does it look like? What we're going to find this morning is how Paul like, breaks it down for us in a way that is dis, just, like, just not comfortable, right? Disconcerting, frustrating. Paul is going to break this down, and he's going to say, look, you, you want to know what contentment looks like? Let me tell you about it. And that's, that's where we're going this morning, and I, I want to jump into Philippians a little more and remind us of where Paul is at the moment. So there's this map up on the screen here, and this map kind of breaks it down. We've come back to this every week, just a frame. We, we never want to read the Bible as though as it's some book that fell out of the sky. 
We always want to read the Bible with the understanding that somehow, some way, God was working with and through the people writing the stuff down in real-world situations. It's as though when Paul writes in a situation where he's in jail and he's around all of this Roman stuff, all of the Roman guards, and, and probably is in jail in Rome, that when he says things like Jesus is Lord, he's not just saying stuff about how you should worship Jesus with your spare time. He's saying, the world around me keeps saying that Caesar is Lord, and I want to tell you something. I've come to find out that it's Jesus who triumphs over Caesar, triumphs over all the systems, all the powers, all the authorities, seen and unseen. And so he's in Rome, and he, he writes this letter to this place called Philippi. It's all kind of the world of Ro the Roman Empire centered around the Mediterranean here. And you can see in the bottom, that's where um, Palestine is, and that Jerusalem, Israel pocket right down there. And so this is a, this is a lot of travel Paul has done. A lot of energy has gone into this sort of season of his life. We think this is one of the later letters in Paul. And he's now reflecting like, okay, what do I do with the lot that I have? What do I do with the lot that I've been given? And he starts it out this way. Verse 4 of chapter 4, check this out. He says, be glad! Woohoo! And I I don't know. Like, if I were Paul, I would have written a country song. You know what I mean? And I'm being a little facetious there. Some of you like country. Whatever, it's fine. Most of you don't. don't whatever. I may or may not have been to a Tim, a Tim McGraw slash Faith Hill concert my senior year of high school. Just saying. But I also listened to the Wu-Tang Clan, so I don't know what that's about. It's really weird. I'm a really confused person. But, but when you think of like the stereotypical country song and it's like this went bad and that went bad and I'm so sad and it's all bad. You know, it, it, it's like that's what Paul should be doing here and he, he's not going to do that for us. He's not going to wallow. He's not going to sort of sit with like everything is the worst and that's my identity. He's actually going to push against that and say everything is the worst and my identity is something outside of that. And so here's how he starts. He says, be glad in the Lord always. Again, I say, be glad. Let your gentleness show in your treatment of all people. How many of us, if we saw a world where gentleness was the posture towards every human being, especially the humans that are different than us, that we would inhabit a world that looked a little bit more like the one we want to dream up together? Imagine a world defined by gentleness. And Paul, in this passage, says, look, gentleness is your posture towards humanity. And he says it in this framework. He says, because the Lord is near. Like, a day is coming when the Lord will be here. What is he saying there? He's saying, look, when Jesus is Lord, gentleness is your marching order. No one ever won a war through that. But gentleness is how we step into the world that God wants us to inhabit. It goes on, he says, look, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. Rather, bring up all of your requests to God in your prayers and petitions, along with giving thanks. 
then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in Christ Jesus. Some of you who have been around here for a while know that anxiety is certainly something I've had to hold. Just how my brain works. Um, and in fact, it's something that um, therapy and Jesus really helped me with, and it's not gone yet. Anxiety is still something I have to notice. I have to tap into those parts of myself that wrestle with, do I just pretend anxiety isn't there, or do I sit with the fact that I'm anxious right now? And what I continue to learn is that when I push anxiety over here as though it doesn't exist, I have a false, fake, pseudo-peace that feels good for a short season. But then this thing that I put over here sort of like bubbles out into other areas unexpectedly, and it's, it's just so not what I want for my own life and what I think God wants for us. And so, so Paul isn't saying, like, you're not going to be anxious. I mean, Jesus was anxious. But he says, look, when that happens, set your imaginative space on God. Give these things over. Can you, I mean, even picture yourself freeing yourself of this stuff and saying, God, I need you to hold this with me. Release it there. One way this could be taken, though, is like, you know, I pray and it goes away. I pray and it goes away. There are moments where that is possible. I believe that. I believe in, like, miraculous healing, for instance, which is not popular in the 21st century, but I, I, I really do. I believe that in an instant, you can pray and something goes away. I don't think it's normative. I think it's possible. The same thing is true with the stuff that we carry. If your habit for dealing with anxiety is, I pray and it goes away, but you have anxiety come up every so often, maybe there's a new strategy to implement. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's another frame of reference. That maybe in those moments you say, okay, I pray and it goes away and it feels like it's good. What if we said, I pray and I sit with it with God and allow it to be what is true and real in that moment. And then I bring other people into it so I'm not alone in it if I need to. And then I see what happens as a result of that. You see, that's just one of the things that we could easily say, oh, so Paul's saying like, I pray, it goes away, everything's good. The truth is we know experientially that's probably not usually the case. Now, if there's a moment where you need to pray and it go away and that works for you, awesome. I mean, roll with that. But I would, I would, I would just venture to guess if it is a habitual pattern of the way you've sat with it, Imagine a life where you hold it differently, maybe. And I might be wrong about that, so, so test that. But I just want to invite you to consider that, you know, the formulaic approach to, I should feel joyful all the time, therefore my anxiety goes away. I've heard this passage taught that way so many times, and we have to be very nuanced and careful that we don't dismiss our own stuff or the stuff of others in the process. I pray and it goes away sometimes. Maybe just add the word sometimes to that formula. But what I think Paul's doing here is profound. I think he's saying, when you feel anxious, 
Don't handle that stuff by yourself. Bring it to God. Pray it through. Sit with it. And imagine that you can have peace alongside of those things that are hard. Because he says, then the peace of God that exceeds all understanding, it it will exceed your categories for understanding reality. When you can have peace and still know that these things that make you anxious are real. There's a way to be safe as we follow Jesus and all of that. I want to make a pretty big claim, and hopefully it resonates with some of us this morning, but I believe that the Bible teaches that there is a peace that is irrational. Absolutely, 100% irrational. That as followers of Jesus, there is this space within us where the Spirit of God resides in the midst of all the stuff we carry. Where peace that is irrational as possible. And what do I mean by irrational? Well, let's think about it. Another thing that is irrational is Jesus rose from the dead. Right? Let me say that again. The idea that Jesus rose from the dead is irrational. You can look at everyone that you've ever met who has died and they don't come back to life. Right? Now, Are there reasons we think historically that maybe this happened? And, you know, of course. Paul says 500 people saw him. They're still alive. They could have called him out in the first century. Liar. No one does that that we know of. Um, The witness is that women were the first people to see Jesus. And as we know, women are the most reliable witnesses in the world. However, back then, people weren't enlightened to that reality and thought they were not the most reliable witnesses in the world. And so, can we like logically come to the conclusion that this possibly happened because it propelled a movement that transformed both eastern and western parts of the world? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we believe in something that is irrational. That's not e-harmony. Irrational. Right on eHarmony, I know a lot of people that found some spouses. Good, good job. And I hear it's evolved to other things, which, a little sketch. Anyway. So I, I think Jesus says, like, like, you can know a piece that's irrational. And I'm going to keep saying it like that probably, irrational. Don't know why. It's my California accent, bruh. Okay. And he goes on. This is what he says in verse 8. Check this out. From now on, brothers and sisters, if anything is excellent and if anything is admirable, focus your thoughts on these things. All that is true, all that is holy, all that is just, all that is pure, all that is lovely, and all that is worthy of praise. Practice these things. Whatever you learned, received, heard, or saw in us, God of peace will be with you. And that's like how he shows us where peace can come from. He says, look, be glad, rejoice, be the kind of people who love well through gentleness. And when there's anxiety among you, 
There's a path. There's a way forward. And, and one of the ways forward that a lot of us get locked into is narratives that are inconsistent with how Jesus is being revealed in this passage. One of the ways forward is we dwell, and we dwell, and we dwell. We feel anxious or sad or frustrated about something. And we allow our imagination to just continue to think and dwell and recycle the narratives until the narrative that we started with that was hard, maybe closer to what is real, recycles into something bigger, recycles into something bigger. And we know from neuroscience why this happens. Your, Your brain is actually firing in directions and making connections that are training your imagination to be negative. You have trained yourself. I've done this. I have a lot of areas that need refiring and wiring. I'll tell you what, all kinds of them. But you can train your brain to recycle bad thoughts into worse thoughts, into worse thoughts. And then new thoughts come in and you're filtering those things through the grid that you've made habitual. You follow? And, and then all of a sudden you get this sort of like ongoing wave. Now let me say something very, very clearly. This is not usually anyone's fault. This is just what happens. So if you hear that, and then you're filtering it through some of those grids right now, like even in this moment, and you're hearing that and saying, I'm just not good at this Jesus, Paul thing we're being invited. That's a lie. I want you to hear that very clearly. That's a lie. The way of Jesus liberates you from all of those kinds of shames. But we do know scientifically now at this point, That your thought life determines a lot about your experience in the world. And so Paul, 2,000 years ago, ahead of neuroscience, ahead of anything, inspired by God's spirit, says the way forward is imagining, reflecting upon, thinking about all of the true things in the world all of the pure things in the world, all of the lovely things, all of the things that are just. And, 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 and in case we don't recognize it, a lot of the people who are being invited into this are people who don't actually get to experience the things that are just as often as they should. He's saying, but imagine it. Soak in what God wants for this world. Soak in how God sees you. No label, no status. but that you're a beloved image bearer of God should name you in this. And he goes on, you remember last week we talked about be like, and not be like Mike, but that was pretty fun, right? Um, be like blank. And we talked about how sometimes what it takes is watching others do this. Learning from others imperfectly. And, and what we have here, again, is practice these things. Whatever you learned, received, heard, or saw in us, and the peace of God will be with you. In other words, we're doing what we can 
to bring you into something that we have already experienced. And in case we, we think Paul's got it all figured out, we, we might want to remember the kinds of hardships that he actually has endured up to this point. We're not going to go into the letter of 2 Corinthians, but he has this long list of how many times he's been whipped, how many times he's been shipwrecked, how many times he's been thrown, <laughs> they've thrown rocks at him. I was going to say how many times he's been stoned, but that's a little confusing here. Um, you know, and so, so Paul has, has endured marginalized suffering. And this is what he has come to know. When we listen to Paul, we're listening to someone who has stepped into the margins of life and has found peace and pain can coexist there. And before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, but kind of just want to say this clearly and concisely, that peace is accessed in the imagination, in that space where you and God dwell together, internally, in the soul, we might say. And he's going to keep going, and in verse 10, he says this. So again, remember, this is a very personal letter, so he's going to say, like, these things that sound like you could just cut them out and put them on the wall on some art, and, and a lot of this is already that, right? And it's good art, by the way. Whatever is true, lovely, like, if that's on your wall, good for you. Hopefully you, like, read it and think about it and saturate in it. But then you get these other parts that are clearly just correspondence, and we still learned something from the correspondence, right? Because then we're anchored back in the reality, oh, this whole thing was a letter. This whole thing was a conversation. This whole thing was a, a friendship, a dialogue with a community of people. And so he goes, hey, verse 10, I was very glad in the Lord because now at last, oh, she's not happy. Very cool. I was very glad in the Lord because now at last you've shown concern for me. Of course you were always concerned, but had no way to show it. I, by the, does that sound funny to anybody else? I know you've always been concerned about me. I mean, I'm, a, I'm kind of a wreck. I mean, get under that a little bit. It's kind of like, I'd be concerned about me. You've heard me complain in these other letters that get passed around. You know what I've been through. I know you've been concerned, but now you've had a way to kind of demonstrate your concern tangibly. In other words, they helped him. They financially gave to his needs. We talked about at the beginning of the series how when you were in some prison settings that if no one came alongside you financially and no one resourced you in those prison settings that you would basically starve. And so people would fund their ability to eat and drink in these settings oftentimes. And so here he's saying, thank you. And he goes, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I need anything. For I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I've learned the secret to being content in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, or whether having plenty or being poor. I can endure all these things through the power of the one who gives me strength. Or as other versions say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In case you're wondering why it doesn't say Christ there, it's because 
the way Greek works, there's, it doesn't say Christ in the Greek. We kind of pull it from another part of the passage and kind of bring it in. Anyway, right? So. When I was an athlete, that verse meant so much to me. I can, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as an athlete, for me, that inspired me to try hard. What took me a while to really get was the, the deep context within which Paul makes that claim. The deep context is, I, I have been in utter poverty, utter pain, utter suffering, utter, you know, just anxiety. And as I access Jesus in that space of peace deep within, somehow I can endure all of that so far. I remember being a high school student and we had a a year or so that was really financially hard for us. Um, By this time, I'm not living with my mom. If you know my backstory, a very challenging, violent childhood, but I'm I'm with my dad and and things are good with dad, except um, by mid-junior year, I believe it was, uh, a job he'd had for years just got unfunded. And so we spent about a year to a year and a half trying to manage that situation, trying to figure out what it meant to be a family in that kind of situation where the income was basically gone. And at this time, I'm in private school. All of my friends are living in fancy houses. They all have nice cars. You know, I mean, and, 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 and so I'm living in these two realities. And I remember my senior year really stepping into Philippians. And finally, it's starting to click in that stage of my life. That I could have this incredible amount of joy when things were uncertain, when things didn't make sense. And now what I've learned, of course, is as true as that was then, it's true in deeper, more dire circumstances as well. But there's something really beautiful about the secret of contentment being learned through pain. One of the things that I've been doing, I, most of you heard that uh, we, we lost our dog three weeks ago, actually today. So three weekends ago, um, we weren't here on the last minute. Um, our, our doggy passed away. Well, we took her to the hospital about literally right now, three weeks ago. She'd been with us for 11 years, my first pet ever in my entire life. And we had this connection, and it was weird and deep and um, hard to explain how human it almost was, you know? The, hard to explain, and, and something I didn't expect. Uh, Lauren brought home this little puppy that I said, okay, I'm not doing anything, but if you want a puppy, you know, 23-year-old Lauren, go for it, you know? And, and, and we had this puppy. And she became my bud, my friend, my kid, my, all these things. And and I, I learned so much. I mean, honestly, I, I became a vegetarian for six years because I, I like looked at her and I said, animals are important. 
And I started thinking about how God and creation and, and the beauty of, of what this world was designed for. And I started asking questions about the way we treat animals. And, and um, I eventually have like transitioned back to meat for a variety of reasons. But I stepped into that in a totally different way. And all of that was because of this little dog and her sister that we got a year later. Very bizarre. God tenderized me in some weird way through this 18-pound ball of crazy. I mean, not a very contained animal, not a very well-trained animal. We tried, and she failed her training class because she didn't want to sit on moist ground at the last class. I know, like, like little stubborn. She ate poop when we didn't watch. I mean, she, she had her issues besides being unhealthy for her whole life. And yet God used this little dog. And so after coming home from vacation and um, taking her to the emergency vet an hour after we got home that night and walking with her for about a week on oxygen at home, trying to help her get through pneumonia, I spent a week with my family feeling all of the kinds of things you would feel for a very close family member. It was bizarre. I, I knew it was coming, but I didn't know. And it was almost as like in that experience, some past pains and things kind of flooded into that moment so that I wasn't just experiencing the loss of my dog, but I was feeling some of the pain that I compartmentalized and other pains that I wasn't ready to fully deal with. And so all of this was flooding into my story and still is, to be really honest with you. I spent hours petting her, just laying there with her. Poor thing had a cone and oxygen line and... She got playful sometimes. It would lick me and nibble lick. You know, I don't know if you know what a nibble lick is, but she kind of, you know, you kind of feel the teeth as she kind of licks you, and it's not mean, it's affection. We had a couple of moments where we thought we were going to lose her that day, and so we sat and we just talked to her about how thankful we were for her. And I realized that because she happened to have been a sickly pup from very early on, that for at least the last eight years, I had been worried and anxious about the day that she would die. And worried and anxious about making sure she was very particularly cared for. And not that it totally ruined anything, not that I feel guilty about that, but there was a deeper contentment that could have been present even in that relationship that I'm learning right now, and I'm not, I don't feel bad about this, I'm just learning it, you know? And through the pain of it all, I'm learning that pain and contentment belong together. Pain and contentment keep us human in a world that's messed up and broken and unjust. Pain and contentment are the invitation of the gospel. Pain and contentment will never be separate until the day Jesus raises our bodies and raises this world from the dead.
and brings heaven to earth and reconciles and heals and purges and does all the beautiful things we believe are true on that last day. I just finished a book by Richard Rohr, and um, Richard Rohr is a Catholic um, mystic, I guess you could say. <laughs> I mean, um, he, is, he was Enneagram before the Enneagram was cool, about 20 years ago, wrote a book on it. He uh, is a voice that has transcended Catholic circles and has definitely influenced a lot of Christian circles and even beyond. Some people say, wow, there's a Christian I can hear from and relate to, you know? And, and I, I, I just finished a book called Falling Upward, and, and the timing of it was just so helpful for me. Not that I even know where to place myself. He, he kind of talks about the, the first half of life, and, and you're, you're building and kind of creating this container to hold your identity in. You, you need to sort of like safeguard things and, and find the kind of person that you are in the world. And then in the second half of life, the container needs to be filled with things that are completely counterintuitive to the thing we thought we were building in the first place. And various people hit the second phase of life in different ways and at different seasons. He says typically he's seen it, observed it from 35 to 50. The truth is, though, he says it can be earlier, it can be much later, or it can never arrive. And that's one of the saddest things that he sees in the spiritual journey. And I want to I invite you to watch a short sort of, I think it's kind of a commercial for, for the book, to be honest with you, from like eight years ago. So excuse that part of it. But he's going to describe this. And the whole idea of falling upward is that pain and falling and sometimes terrible sinning and, and just whatever makes your life feel like it's collapsing can actually, if framed right, become a catalyst towards a depth that you may have never known with God and with others. So check this out really quick. What is this all for? What is the human project about? Much of our concern in the first half of life is about rising, achieving, accomplishing, performing. The second half of life, once you've created your ego structure, you got your identity, you finally have the courage to ask, what is this all for? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this? What prevents us growing into the second half of life is that we are so addicted by 30 or 40 to the task of the first half of life that it seems like the only game in town. So you need something to make it fall apart. This is what we mean by necessary suffering. Your soul... Your emotional life is being expanded immensely through this falling. But if you can find grace or freedom in that falling, through that falling, in fact, you find that it moves your life forward, upward, broader, deeper, better. Uh, just the opposite of what you first think when you fall. The ultimate spiritual benefit is that you find out by falling and afterwards realizing it's a falling upward, you, you find the meaning of your own life. I don't know if you find it any other way. Maybe the thing you'd immediately see in a second half of life person is they will strike you as grounded. They're not guarded.
They're not overly self-protective. They're looking for ways to give themselves away. For the most part, we've pushed off the journey into the next world. And what I want to say is the further journey has to happen in this world. And then you're ready for heaven. You're living heaven now. You're practicing for heaven. And so heaven is not even a big change of venue. It's a continuation of what you've already begun to experience. The secret of contentment is learned through pain. So I want to leave us with a thought here. Hopefully it kind of ties this all together. And it's simply, can we imagine? Can we imagine inward peace and contentment alongside pain and frustration? Can we imagine peace and contentment alongside pain and frustration? What we know is true for the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter, what we know is true for Jesus, what we know is true for anyone that we look at and say we want to emulate their spiritual existence because there's something very earthy and real about it, is that they still hold pain, they still hold frustration, they still see the things that are not right, And yet, there's this inward sense of, I can can do all things by the power of the one who gives me strength. I can step into all things, and I can can find this sense of peace. I can find this sense of uh, awareness of who I am and what I have while deeply feeling the pain in my soul, while deeply feeling the pain of the people around me, while deeply diving into the pain of people who are different than me. I wonder what peace would do for you this week. So I want to actually just pause, and I want to kind of go to a space of quiet for a moment. And if you feel comfortable, I want to invite you to pray. And if this starts to feel uncomfortable, you are welcome to walk and stretch. Um, I'd say go around the block, assuming it's not super wet. Um, grab coffee. And, and I just want to give you the space, though, however that looks for you, to just do a little bit of imagining. Imagine peace. Imagine peace tomorrow. What does peace look like for you tomorrow? And maybe that's even too far. Maybe you can imagine peace for the rest of the day. Jesus has this profound statement. He says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has a lot of concerns. So maybe you start with what is real right now. But there is something beautiful about imagining things that you know are real and true in the immediate future as well. So whatever is helpful for you, Step into that space. And so I want to invite you to close your eyes if you're willing and and I'll just kind of guide us in prayer. And then we'll corporately pray together the prayers of the people and lean into the latter part of our worship together through music. Jesus, in this moment, thank you 
that when we look at you as a model, we don't have to see a God who is polished. We don't have to see a God who is just fine. It's all good. But we see a God who suffers for the good because it's not all good. We see a God who needed his buddies to pray for him because his anxiety was so high. We see a God who, when hit, turned the cheek, when spat upon, endured, when flogged, continued walking. We see this through Paul as well. As he strove to emulate you with all of his flaws, with all of his brokenness. And we see this invitation in light of the fact that both you, O oh God, and even Paul had this irrational sense of peace and joy that you invite all of us to move towards, to discover. And so now I invite us to pause. In a few moments, we're going to be leaving. We'll have some good conversations. Some of us will pick up our kids. And we'll be going on to the next thing. Spend a moment with Jesus and invite him to show you what those moments might look like. But not necessarily all the externals, but maybe more so just showing us the groundedness, the, what, what peace feels like as we approach whatever may come. Pause and imagine. Imagine what it feels like, what it looks like, what it tastes like as the day comes to a close. What about tomorrow morning? What about work, school, family, home? wherever it is that you may be. May all of us come to know that the irrational peace of Jesus is his desire for us. And that this peace that transcends all understanding may not be 
actualized overnight for some of us. But what it may be is that we lean in incrementally ever so much and notice that some part of ourselves are slowly but surely being transformed and healed, renewed. May it be so. Amen. Friends, we're going to continue in a posture of worship and prayer. I want to invite um, the worship team to kind of come forward and whoever might be praying this morning to come forward with them. And whatever you continue to hold, may these songs and the practice of communion be a space of release for us, a space to invite Jesus to hold, to heal, to bring joy. Amen.